got your Bibles with you. going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look, our sermon text is verses 6 to 8, Matthew 5, verses 6 to 8 of Matthew 5, but I want to read uh, the first eight verses just so we get the, the context there. And just, uh, Mark forgot to announce that there's going to be a meal immediately following the service over in the gym, and everyone is invited to that meal. So hopefully everyone can stick around. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, please hear this public reading of God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's just pray briefly together. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the privilege it is to come and gather here and to worship with your people, to sing with your people. What a joy it is. And uh, as we come and open up your word and come to a familiar passage through these Beatitudes, the fourth, fifth, and sixth Beatitude, uh, I pray that we would be convicted on these Beatitudes, but I also pray that we would be reminded of the sweetness and the beauty of the gospel today. I pray that you'd help me to be faithful to your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So let me just go ahead and give you the, the title of my sermon. I think we may have a slide that may show the title of, of the sermon. Uh, the title is simply going to be, Blessed Are Those Who, Blessed Are Those Who, with, with a colon, and then we'll have three points, and we're following basically the three Beatitudes. So blessed are those who, number one, hunger and thirst for righteousness, Blessed are those who, number one, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Number two, blessed are those who are merciful, are merciful. And number three, blessed are those who are pure in heart. That's the basic outline that we are going to follow today. But just a few quick words of reminder about the Sermon on the Mount. We covered the beginning of this about, I think, three weeks ago. Uh, This is when Jesus' ministry had begun and all kinds of people are beginning to flock around Jesus. Crowds are flocking to hear Jesus. All kinds of diverse people are coming to see The Lord Jesus, just a very diverse crowd to see his words and see his uh, works. He's healing all diseases, so all kinds of people are coming to see Jesus. Illiterate people and literate people, Pharisees, tax collectors, sinners, all coming to hear Jesus. And he sees the crowd, and he goes up to a prominent spot. He sits down, and he begins to teach uh, from this mountain, this most famous sermon, this most majestic sermon. It's it's been called the, the, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And then he started with the Beatitudes, these eight Beatitudes, and they are worded in a simple and easy-to-memorize way. I mean, they, they follow the same basic format. It should be pretty easy to memorize them, uh, worded in a very simple way. But when you, when you get into these Beatitudes, there's an incredible depth of thought behind these Beatitudes. And I have certainly felt that, especially on this sermon. It's just sort of like a lake that just drops down immediately, gets very deep, very fast. And that's how these Beatitudes are. I mean, you, you just get into them, and it's just like, wow, there's incredible depth of thought behind these relatively simple words that Jesus uses. As we think about these Beatitudes, what are they? What are they describing, these eight blessings? Well, they are giving us the character of those who are true children of God. That's what they are describing. They're giving us the character of those who are true children of God. They're giving us the unmistakable evidences of a genuine work of grace in someone's life. When when there's a genuine work of grace in life, this is what you're going to see show up in in their life, these Beatitudes. I mentioned last time, if if you were struggling with assurance, 1 John's a great place to go to, but this... These Beatitudes could be another great place to go to, to be challenged. They they will make us face ourselves to see if we are genuinely born again. 
So, blessed are those who, number one, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So what we want to do here is we want to think about hunger and thirst in the physical realm, and then we want to push that down to the spiritual realm. So we want to think about it in the, in the physical realm first. We sort of did this with the very first beatitude, you may remember. The first beatitude was in Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about what it looked like to be poor in the, in the physical realm. What makes a, a poor person, a, a poor man or woman? A poor man or woman is someone who is dispossessed, who lacks resources to help and save oneself. They must look outside of themselves for the supply of their need. And then we, we put, took that and we pushed it down to the spiritual realm and said, what does it look like to be poor in spirit? Well, someone who is poor in spirit has seen God in his holiness and in his righteousness and knows that they are undone before this God and they are spiritually bankrupt before this God. And all they can do is cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So we want to do that here on this beatitude in verse 6, thinking about hunger and thirst in the physical realm. What does it look like to be hungry and thirsty in the physical realm? Well, true hunger and thirst are going to have certain unmistakable effects are going to take place if someone is genuinely hungry or genuinely thirsty. When someone is genuinely hungry or thirsty, they become absolutely serious about obtaining what will satisfy their hunger or thirst. When you are genuinely hungry or thirsty, you become single-minded. Other things in your life go to the periphery of your life, and you become absolutely single-minded on sort of satisfying your hunger or thirst. Hunger is something deep, something profound, that it goes on and on until it is satisfied. It is something that goes on increasing and makes one feel desperate. It's going to cause you to be desperate. The more, the more hungry you are, the more thirsty you are, the more desperate you're going to become to satisfy this hunger or thirst. Lots of stories could be told on this, but I'll take one from one of the commentaries that I read from. He said that he was traveling to a conference, and he said he endured various traveling fiascos that day. He doesn't go into the details, but he said basically what happened was he wasn't able to eat all day. And so it was 10 o'clock at night. He was being driven home from the conference center where they were, the conference was going on. He hasn't eaten all day. And he said he already knew that at the lodgings where he was staying, there was no food there. So he knows that if he doesn't eat on the way home, he's not going to eat all night. So another eight, maybe 10 hours before breakfast comes around. He said his stomach is, all his, he could do is think about food. His stomach is just driving him crazy. You're hungry. You've got to eat. You've got to eat. That's all he's thinking about. He said the other theologians in the van were just having this fascinating conversation, but he couldn't even enjoy this conversation because all he can think about is he's hungry. He's hungry. And so he took a quick poll from the other guys and said, was anybody else hungry? And apparently they were. So they decided they're going to go to a fast food restaurant, and they told the driver, could you, you know, please pull over to one of these fast food restaurants ahead? Now, the driver either didn't hear them, or he just simply ignored them, and he just continued to drive and just went right past these three fast food restaurants. And now there's only one fast food restaurant left. He sees it up ahead, and he knows if they miss this fast food restaurant, they're not, he's not going to eat all night. And so he, he's getting very intense. Now, he said to the driver, turn into the left lane. I insisted, acting as if I would grab the wheel. Turn into the left lane now. So this poor driver, you know, swerves over at the last second to the left lane, pulls into this fast food, fast food restaurant, and this commentator said a hamburger, fries, and a milkshake never tasted so good. You see, his hunger propelled him into action, it propelled him into action, made him absolutely single-minded on food. So what we are seeing here is that hunger and thirst vividly express desire. That's what Jesus is talking about. It vividly expresses desire. The person who is genuinely or hungry or thirsty has a consuming desire for food, or water. So now let's, let's begin to push this down to the spiritual realm. Let's push this down to the spiritual realm. What, what is Jesus actually talking about? Well, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who have a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire for righteousness, for righteousness. So even as we hunger and thirst physically, we are to hunger and thirst for the righteousness, for righteousness in, in the spiritual realm. Now, the $50,000 question here is, 
what is this righteousness that is being spoken of here in verse 6? That's the key question. And is there sort of division on this? Some Reformed people will take this to mean primarily this is the righteousness of Jesus. That's what's being spoken of here. The perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus. Now, I don't think that's the primary emphasis of what Jesus is saying. I think that's certainly on this, but I don't think that's the primary emphasis. One pastor said this, legal righteousness, justification by faith is all over this. But at the same time, that's not the primary application of what Jesus is saying. So legal righteousness, justification by faith, it's all over this. That's not the primary emphasis, but let's take this first one anyway, this perfect righteousness of Jesus. One pastor used Martin Luther as an illustration here, and if you remember Martin Luther's life, you can talk to Fred afterwards. He's an expert on Luther, but we talked about Luther in a Sunday school back on Reformation Day, October 31st of last year. And if you remember that or if you've seen that, uh, you remember Luther became, was starting to become a lawyer, a brilliant lawyer mind of his, and then he, uh, that storm he encountered, the lightning bolt, and he cries out he's going to become a monk. So he goes to become a monk, and he takes this brilliant lawyer mind of his, and he applies it to the law of God. And when he applied it to the law of God, he knew, he sees that he is a sinner. I mean, he, he just knew it. You didn't have to convince Martin Luther that he was a sinner when he took that brilliant law mind to the law of God. He knows he's a sinner. No convincing Martin Luther uh, that he was a sinner. And there's a sense in which Luther was hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God. No matter how hard he tried, though, he would spend hours in the, conf- in the confessional booth. Mark talked about this. He would spend hours confessing every possible little sin in his life. And Sproul has said, how much trouble could you get into in a monastery? And yet Sproul would, I mean, and yet Luther would spend hours there confessing his sins. He would feel some peace when he left, and he would remember one sin that he forgot, and he would race back to confess that sin. So no matter how hard he tried, no matter how many hours he spent driving his confessors nuts, Basically, no matter how hard he tried to be righteous in his own strength, he was haunted by the righteousness and holiness of God. And then finally, after a long period of time, he sees for the first time there is a righteousness outside of himself. He's studying the book of Romans. He sees for the first time there's a righteousness outside of himself. It can be his by faith in Jesus. And he says the gates of paradise swung open for Luther as he trusted in the finished work of Jesus. He's covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And so it's certainly true that Martin Luther hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And when he found that righteousness of Jesus, he was satisfied. He was filled with joy at the knowledge of his forgiveness of sins. And it's true of us if you're a believer today. When you saw God in his holiness and his majesty, you knew you were undone before this God. And there's a sense in which we hungered and thirsted for righteousness. If you remember three weeks ago, I told about George Whitfield going to those coal miners. They knew they were sinners and they were glad to hear of a righteousness outside of himself. And that was us too. We were glad to hear that Jesus can provide us with a perfect righteousness. And we turned and trusted and we were satisfied at conversion. But I don't think that's the primary emphasis. That's on this, but that's not the primary emphasis. What, what do we take for the primary emphasis? Well, you, you turn to Martin Lloyd-Jones for a little bit of help for the primary emphasis, and he says this, the very context in which we find it insists, it seems to me, that righteousness here includes not only justification, but sanctification also. You see, Jesus, I think, is primarily talking about a hunger for holiness. He's talking about a hunger for holiness. He's talking about those who intensely long for that righteousness of life that is pleasing to God. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness long to live righteously. That's the idea here. So you see at conversion, when we come to saving faith, when we are genuinely born again, there comes with new birth an intense hunger and thirst for spiritual things that begins to mark our lives at conversion. Deep down in our life at conversion, there is this desire to want to honor God, to want to please God. One commentator said, such spiritual hunger is a characteristic of all God's people. I mean, this is true. If you're a child of God, this is true. There's there's this spiritual hunger. 
So such spiritual hunger is a characteristic of all God's people whose supreme ambition is not material, but spiritual. Supreme ambition is no longer material, but spiritual. You see, before we came to saving faith, our supreme ambition, it was material. It was for the things of this earth. That's what we were longing for. That's what we were living for, primarily. We were preoccupied, utterly preoccupied with the things of this earth. Maybe it was sports, a career, hobby, or wealth. We were totally preoccupied. And then a conversion, new birth comes, and now we are preoccupied with the things of God. It is spiritual things that become the supreme ambition. One person said it means that one's supreme desire in life is to know God and to be in fellowship with Him. It reminds you of Psalm 42, the sons of Korah. They, they, they cry out, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. David in Psalm 63, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So you see, the, the God-blessed man or woman, the one who is a genuine believer in Jesus, has a conscious appetite and thirst for God, for His truth, for His Word, and for His will. So again, at conversion, we begin to acquire this taste for righteousness. We begin to love the things that God loves. We begin to long to do the things that He has called us to do. Another illustration that multiple people use, this illustration, this comes from World War I. Uh, it's when the British liberated Palestine... So I'll try to explain this to you. Around 1917, I think this story took place. There was a combined group of forces. There were British forces, Australian forces, and there were New Zealanders. And they were pressing after Turkish soldiers over uh, the deserts of Palestine. This is where the battle is being waged on the deserts of Palestine. This combined group of forces pursuing these Turkish soldiers across the arid desert. And now this attack of these soldiers that were pursuing the Turkish soldiers, they outdistanced themselves from their water supply and then they ran out of water, and they're in the middle of the desert. They're out of water pursuing these other soldiers. Now they have two options. Number one, they can turn back and try to find their water supply, and they could risk dying in the process going back to find their water supply. Number two, they can go forward because there are deserts. I mean, there are wells up ahead in the desert called the Sharia Wells, and they know that there's water there, and they can try and press forward to the wells. Now the problem is they're gonna, the Turkish soldiers are encamped, at the wells. They're sort of guarding the wells. They're going to have to fight them off if they're going to get to the wells. They decide to go with option two and to press forward to try to get to these wells and press the Turkish soldiers off the wells. One of the men who was there that day was a man named Major Gilbert. Major Gilbert. And this is what he says. Our heads ached and our eyes became bloodshot and dim in the blinding glare. Our tongues began to swell. Our lips turned a purplish black and burst. They are, they are extremely dehydrated. Their heads are aching. Their tongues are swelling. Their lips are cracking. They are in desperate need of water. They go into these wells and they begin to attack the Turkish soldiers. The sun goes down and they still haven't cleared off the Turkish soldiers yet. And here's again Major Gilbert. He said, we fought that day as men fight for their lives. They are in absolute desperation to get to that water and get to those wells. And finally, they're able to push these Turkish soldiers off. They go in. He said, the first sound they hear is the trickling of cold water in these wells. They immediately line up in formation. The most desperate cases go first. Other men, the less severe cases go behind. And he said, no one complained at all. But the most desperate cases begin to drink this water. And slowly over time, everyone is able to drink this water that literally saves their life, this cold water in the desert. But Major Gilbert was a believer in Jesus, and this is what he says about what they learned that day in the desert with all that heat, all the dehydration. Here's what he says. I believe that we all learned our first real Bible lesson on the march from Beersheba to the Sharia Wells. Here's his point. 
If such were our thirst for God, our thirst for righteousness, and for His will in our lives, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich would all of us be in the fruit of the Spirit? I mean, he is striking the nail right on the head here. And a pastor, in response to that story, says this, I would say to you this, I honestly do believe in my heart of hearts that part of the reason why there is not more of an expression of the holiness and the righteousness of God Almighty in Bible-believing evangelical churches in America today is simply because of this, we do not genuinely desire it. We don't want it. We're not longing for it. You see, spiritual health in our lives comes from spiritual hunger. He's going to produce spiritual health. Again, a commentator says, there is perhaps no greater secret of progress in Christian living. Here's the secret of progress in the Christian living. You want to make progress? Here's the secret. A healthy, hearty, spiritual appetite. This is the key to growing. We want to have a healthy, hearty, spiritual appetite if we want to make progress in Christ-likeness. Again, to quote Lloyd-Jones, who said, it is amazing how we find time to do the things we want to do. It's just so true. I don't care how busy you are. If there's something you genuinely want to do, you're going to carve out time to do that thing that you want to do. It all comes back to this desire for whatever it may be. And when we first came to faith in Christ, you you remember those days perhaps when you first came to faith? One commentator said you couldn't get enough of Jesus or His Word. You were joyously desperate for the things of God. You, you remember when there was this great hunger for the Word of God, you couldn't wait to run and read the Bible and listen to sermons. There was this huge desire for God and for His Word. And so often, though, in the Christian life, this desire can drop and it can go back up and it can go down and up and down in our lives. So my, my question would be, how do we sort of keep this desire growing, keep it up? And, well, first we'll say, how does it drop? How does it drop? And then we'll talk about maintaining it. But how does this desire for spiritual things, how does it drop? All kinds of things could be said here. How does it drop? Well, I think, number one, it could be because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world that our souls sort of get stuffed with worldly things. And different people use different illustrations, but you could use an illustration of there's this huge meal coming up and all the food is being prepared. You're sitting there maybe on the couch and there's a can of Pringles in front of you and you pop the can open and you start eating these Pringles. And next thing you know, you've eaten the whole can. And then you go to the meal and you're just not that hungry. You just nibble away at the food. It's because you've stuffed yourself on the, on the, on the can of Pringles or whatever, the Doritos, whatever it may be. And that's how we could be. We could just nibble away at just consuming worldly things and our desire for spiritual things will drop when we do that. It could be just simply skipping spiritual meals. We can just grow casual with our time alone in the Word of God. We just begin to skip it. We begin to skim. We begin to take less time with those things. And the more we skip on spiritual meals, the more our desire for spiritual things will, will drop. It could be some kind of willful sin that is festering in us that we're sort of wanting to domesticate, hold on to, don't want to really let go of the sin. And when we're holding on to a sin, our desire for the things of God are going to drop. So how do we nurture this passion for righteousness? How do we maintain this desire for spiritual things? I picture it sort of this flame inside of us. We want to guard this flame inside of us, and we want to feed this flame as best we can, this desire for the things of God. So how do we nurture this? Well, if we are truly hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we shall not only avoid things that we know to be bad and harmful. So we want to guard this flame. We, we, we uh, ignore those things. We, we don't do those things. We avoid those things that are bad and harmful, sinful things. Clearly, we, we cut those out. We make war on those things. But not only that, we shall even avoid things that tend to dull or take the edge off our spiritual appetites, even things that are legitimate in themselves. If we desire the things of God less 
after spending too much time with whatever it may be, I mean, you can fill in the blank here, sports, hobby, social media, whatever it may be, if that causes us to sort of desire the things of God less, we, we must avoid those things. And we, we've got to determine those things for ourselves. So that's how we're guarding this, this flame, this passion for, for God. Now the question would be, how do we fuel this, this flame, this, this desire uh, for righteousness? Well, I think we've we got to go to the means of grace. It's, it's a regular disciplined diet in, in the Word of God. We've we, we got to make it a priority to spend time alone with God. We've got to make fellowship with God's people a priority, and certainly prayer, make prayer a priority. We, we know these things. But what about praying specifically for this desire for God? If we, do, we, do we pray this way, that we would that we'd be satisfied uh, with God's love for us, that we'd be desiring him more and more. There's a hymn that was written, I think, in 1856 uh, that I love, and I was looking it up this week, sort of the information behind this hymn, and it was this woman had, she lost her four-year-old son, and then she, I think it was a four-year-old son, and then she lost a young child, and she was just in deep depression. She was inconsolable. They couldn't console her. And then in this deep depression, she wrote this poem that turned into this hymn, and here's, it's a prayer. It's beautiful. Here's a portion of it. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear the, thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea, more love, O Christ, to thee. I mean, do, do we ever pray that way, more love? Do we pray it earnestly? I want a greater love for you, Lord. I want a greater desire for the things of God. One commentator said, well, you must pray that each decade of your life will find you more thirsty for a life-pleasing to God. And I would simply say, why limit that to every decade? Make it every year, make it every month, make it every day for a week or two weeks and see what happens. Help me, make me more thirsty for life pleasing to you. Make me more hungry for the things of God. God is our loving Heavenly Father and we should come to Him like this. So let's look at this one more time. Verse 6 of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There's a sense in which this is fulfilled three different ways. Fulfilled at conversion, we're satisfied like Luther when we're covered in the righteousness of Jesus. There's a sense in which it's fulfilled continually in the life of the believer. Uh, one pastor told the illustration of somebody made him a uh, plate of brownies, brought it in, he smelled the brownies. Oh man, he got to make a co- pot of coffee, he makes the pot of coffee, he gets his brownie, he ate the brownie, he was satisfied for about 15 minutes, he said. And then he had to get another brownie and get some more coffee. And there's a sense in which that's true in the Christian life. We, we come to the Word of God, we study it, and oh man, the joy and the satisfaction. And there's a sense of, oh, we can't wait for more, and we can't wait for more. It's just continually fulfilled in the life of the believer, it's like the Apostle Paul. He knew Christ intimately, but the intimacy and satisfaction made him long for more. And there's a sense in which this will be ultimately fulfilled in God's presence, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. All right. Number two, blessed are those who are merciful. Matthew 5, verse 7. Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Okay, so... Going to spend less time on these, these last two, if you're worried about that, less time on these last two. But here's a question we have to consider about this beatitude. Does this beatitude imply that receiving mercy from God depends upon our showing mercy to others? Is that what this is saying? That receiving mercy from God depends upon us showing mercy to others? No, that can't possibly be true. That would contradict uh, the Bible. If we were dealt with on these terms, none of us would see heaven. So that can't be what Jesus is saying here. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that we are to show mercy because we have received mercy. And if we do not show mercy to others, we show that we have never actually received mercy from God. So you see, showing mercy is evidence that we have received mercy. When God's grace comes into our hearts at conversion, when we are 
clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, when, when God has, extends forgiveness to us, we are able to extend forgiveness to others. We are able to extend mercy to others. So we show mercy because we have received mercy. So how should we think about this word mercy or this word merciful? How do we get a, get a grasp on this word mercy? Well, one commentator was very helpful. He said, mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and needy. So mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and needy. So we'll take this first part. Mercy embraces forgiveness for the guilty. Nothing is going to move us to forgive others like the amazing knowledge that we ourselves have been forgiven. You see, we have sinned against God more than anyone else has ever sinned against us. I mean, when we, when we sin, God is always the most offended party every single time. So we've sinned against God far worse than anybody else has sinned against us. And so when we experience forgiveness, we are the 10,000 talent debtor, this debt that we can never repay. And when God forgives that debt, we are able to extend forgiveness to others. And if we fail to forgive others, it means we've never experienced the forgiveness uh, of God. So a quick illustration on this. I was listening to a Ligonier Ministries q and I love those Q&As. And uh, one of the guys on there was a seminary professor at uh, Westminster Seminary in California. And he told a story uh, about a guy from Turkey who had come to the seminary to study uh, at Westminster Seminary there in California. And this man from Turkey told this story uh, to the seminary professor. He said that uh, there was a faithful missionary couple that went to Turkey to you know, share the gospel, to make disciples there in Turkey. I don't even know how old this couple was. Not sure if they had kids or not, but they were there just to, to share the gospel, build up uh, believers. And one particular day, the, the husband of this couple was out on the streets of Turkey just proclaiming Christ. He was just telling people the gospel, telling people the good news of what Christ had done. And while he was sharing the gospel, a man in, in the crowd jumped out of the crowd with a sharp knife in hand. He attacks this man, brutally murders him on the streets of Turkey. He dies on the street of Turkey as a martyr. Well, word spread rapidly in Turkey, and a news agency heard about this, this brutal murder, and they sent a camera crew over uh, to the wife of this missionary. So this, this woman has just become a widow. Here comes a camera crew to her door to interview her about this murder of her husband. And they, they put the the camera on, and they put a mic in her face, and they ask her what she would like to say to the nation. What, what do you want to say to the nation of Turkey? And here's what she said. I would like to say that in the name of Christ, I forgive my husband's killer. One sentence. And this missionary, this guy who'd gone to, to Westminster Seminary in California, he said, apparently, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, this one sentence from this one woman did a lot had a powerful effect for the spread of the gospel in Turkey because apparently in Turkey, Turkish culture is a revenge culture. So this woman saying that she forgave her husband's killer was arresting. It, it was baffling. People just couldn't make sense of it. How could she forgive? And my guess is that it made many people go and examine the truth claims of Christianity to see what was behind this woman's sentence. And my guess is many people came to Saving Faith because of this, this woman's forgiveness, this one sentence that she said, because they couldn't make sense. How in the world could she forgive her husband's killer? Well, we know the answer we know how she could forgive because she's a child of God. She has been forgiven her many sins. She's living in light of the gospel, and in light of the gospel, she can forgive this man who killed her husband violently there. So mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty on the one hand, but it's also compassion for the suffering and needy. Some have said that mercy is compassion in action. Mercy means active goodwill. So how do we show mercy to others? How can we show mercy to others? Well, one pastor he said, to be a minister of mercy begins with our mouths. 
to come alongside others and speak that which builds them up at a time when they are down and discouraged. I thought that's something that we can so clearly just miss, but I'm so glad he said that. It, it begins with our mouths. We want to be ministers of mercy. It begins with our mouths. We see someone who's uh, discouraged, someone who's down. We want to come alongside them. We want to speak words that build them up. We want to speak words of grace to them in their discouragement. We want to pray with them. So to be a minister of mercy, it begins with our mouths. But beyond that, the merciful person, when they see needs rise up, they're going to ask questions like, how can I help in this situation? What can I give? Maybe we meet the needs with, with a meal or cutting someone's grass or giving someone a ride or picking someone up from the airport. Maybe we give our time or our counsel. Whatever the need may be, we want to show and extend mercy. And our church has done this so well. I mean, you, I could tell all kinds of stories. The story that came to mind was Alexis Cunningham. She burned her hands really bad. Her husband, Ben, is in the military. He was gone overseas. He was trying to get home. But here she is in this suffering condition with her hands. And our church immediately uh, started a meal train, started cooking meals. People started taking meals over to help in any way they could. And you could tell these stories dozens of times. And our church has been such a, a merciful church. Many people who preached on this uh, beatitude told the story of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan found in Luke 10. I just want to, I want to read this story. I know we know this story, but I just want to read this story. You don't have to turn there. Uh, I just want to read this story. Our son Michael, actually, he's a big fan of this story. He's kind of into bad guys and, and the robbers, and this story <laughs> lines up with him uh, recently. But here's what Jesus says in, in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you. When I come back. Now, notice here in Luke 10, it says he had compassion, but then it says he went to him and bound up his wounds. So, if a person has real compassion, he doesn't just simply feel this compassion. No, this compassion, he's going to show this compassion. It's not simply just a feeling that you have, it's going to evidence itself in action. Now, many people will preach the Good Samaritan story and they will simply say, you know, be like the Good Samaritan. That's how, that's how they'll end the sermon, be like the Good Samaritan. Well, I think if you preach it that way, you've missed something key. In that parable, and I go back to, to Matthew Henry, who helped me so much on this. I don't know how many years ago I was reading his commentary on Luke 10, and it, he just blew me away in his commentary. You see, what, what Matthew Henry told me was that when we read the story of the Good Samaritan, we should think of the ultimate Good Samaritan. Who's the ultimate Good Samaritan? The ultimate Good Samaritan is Jesus. And here's what, some of what Matthew Henry says. The law of Moses, like the priest and Levite, looks upon us but has no compassion on us, gives us no relief, passes by on the other side, is having neither pity nor power to help us. But then comes the blessed Jesus, that good Samaritan. He has compassion on us. He binds up our bleeding wounds, pours in not oil and wine, but that which is infinitely more precious, his own blood. He takes care of us and bids us put all the expenses of our cure upon his account. See, Jesus didn't just take care of us. He demonstrated that, com that compassion by doing everything to heal us, and to redeem us. Christ had mercy on us. He saved us. And he, in living in light of the ultimate good Samaritan, we now want to go and be merciful to others. All right, number three, blessed are those who are pure in heart. Matthew 5, verse 8. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we, we see right away that God is concerned about the heart. He's concerned about the heart. Blessed are those who are pure, not only on the surface, but in the center of their being. Blessed are those who are pure in the center of their being. Now the idea, we want to think about what does it mean to be pure in heart. And really, there, again, there's, there's two answers given on this. And I'm going to tell you that I think it's both of these, but there are two answers given on this. This purity of heart. Some take it to mean inner moral purity. Some take it to mean inner moral purity. My guess is most of us, that's the way we've thought of it, inner moral purity, as opposed to merely external piety. Others take it to mean single-mindedness. Now, again, I'm gonna, I think it's both of these, and we'll, I'll, I'll expand on that. But let's take the first one, this radical inner moral purity, which is certainly part of this. Kevin DeYoung uh, says this, this verse has helped me fight sexual temptation more than any verse in the Bible. That's a very strong statement from Kevin DeYoung. He says, this verse, Matthew 5, 8, has helped him fight sexual temptation more than any verse in the Bible. How could that be true? How could that be true? Well, you have to fight sin with better promises. You have to fight sin with greater pleasure is the idea. And so when we think about sin, we've talked about this a lot in our church. Sin, there's the hook of sin with the bait of pleasure on top of it. And the only reason why we give in to sin is because of the pleasure that sin offers. That's why we chomp down every time. It's the pleasure that it offers but sin will never satisfy us. It's like salt water. It will never, ever satisfy you. Robert Murray McShane said, sin is always something away from my greatest enjoyment. Sin has the direct tendency to make us miserable. And so we must unmask sin. We must unmask sin in that sense at the beginning, but we also must fight sin with greater pleasure, with greater promises. So thinking about sexual temptation specifically, when we are tempted in the moment to watch the show or the movie or to click on that link that we know we shouldn't click on or go to the website that we know we shouldn't go to or take that glance that we shouldn't do, we fight in that moment. We fight. We unmask sin. We say, if I do this, if I give in to this, this will not satisfy me. It won't. It will never satisfy me. My conscience is going to condemn me if I take a bite out of this and I will be left with the horrible aftertaste of sin's pleasures and ultimately this sin will block my vision of God and that's not what we want we do not want our vision blocked of God we fight with greater pleasure we want to see God there's nothing more spectacular and satisfying than seeing and enjoying God so we this is certainly we want to use this verse to help us fight in this area of inner moral purity fight with greater pleasure so that's the first part but others take this verse to mean single-mindedness others take it to mean single-mindedness the idea would be we are to be singly focused in heart on God. We are to have an undivided heart. We don't want a divided heart. don't want a compromising heart. We want a single-minded heart. One pastor said it's sort of like a horse with, with blinders on, the pure in heart. They, they want to live for, for God and for His glory. They want to have this single-mindedness, this focus, this absorption, this concentration, this sincerity. Now, I'll, I'll tie both of these together. The one who is single-minded in commitment to God and His glory will also be inwardly pure. Inward deceit and moral filth cannot coexist with sincere devotion to Christ. You see, if you're sincerely devoted to Christ, you're going to be inwardly morally pure. If you're inwardly morally pure, you're going to have a sincere devotion to Christ. So they both go together. Now, before we came to faith in Christ, we did not have a pure heart. We had a filthy heart had a heart of stone, but God takes that heart of stone out. He gives us a heart of flesh that begins to pump spiritual life into us. And one pastor said, a principle of purity in the inward man starts at conversion. The Holy Spirit, as it were, writes holiness to the Lord across the soul of the believer. And look at it one more time. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see 
God. The pure in heart will see God, now with the eyes of faith, and finally in the dazzling brilliance of the beatific vision in whose light no deceit can exist. Only the pure in heart will see God. See Him now with the eye of faith and see in His glory in the hereafter. So at the end of the age, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be admitted into God's presence and they will be awestruck by a direct experience of His holiness and glory. So blessed are those who, number one, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Certainly it's implied, this perfect righteousness of Jesus is implied, but I think the main emphasis is this hunger for holiness, this desire for spiritual things, all that we would pray for this desire, we would nurture this desire for God and for the things of God. Blessed are those two, number two, who, who are merciful. And mercy embraces forgiveness for the guilty. Remember uh, the, the widow, her husband brutally murdered, and yet she extends forgiveness. She's living in light of the gospel there. But mercy also embraces compassion for the suffering and needy, and we want to remember the Good Samaritan, but we want to remember the ultimate Good Samaritan, the Lord Jesus, who had compassion on us and has saved us. And then number three, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Inward moral purity and single-mindedness on God and His glory. And we need to fight sin with greater pleasures, greater promise, promises. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these Beatitudes are wonderful. They are worded in a simple and easy to memorize way, and yet there is incredible depth of thought behind them. It's certainly been convicting for me to study these, especially the hunger and thirst for righteousness. Father, I, I do pray that we'd have a greater hunger for spiritual things. There would be a greater desire for righteousness. We have a greater longing to live righteously. Even that hymn, more love to thee, O Christ. That's, that's our earnest plea on bended knee. I pray that we'd pray that type of prayer and really mean it, that we'd want more love for the Lord Jesus in our life. Father, even as we sing now, I pray that our worship would be honoring to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.